Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 10th chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, page 634 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. It's wonderful to see you on this Lord's Day. Happy to be here, all spared and God being willing. So we're going to read chapter 10. While you're turning there, just let me say this to you. Um, Keep this in mind. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 is the record of Daniel's final vision. So chapter 10 is the prologue of the vision. The 11th chapter is the explanation of that vision. And chapter 12 is the epilogue, if you would, to the vision. So in, in essence, the last three chapters are one continuous occasion. So it's important to keep that in mind as we work through that. Let's hear the word of the Lord, chapter 10. I'm going to read the whole chapter. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days, Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed. He said, Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And we'll stop there 
ask God for His mercy as we seek to understand His Word this morning. Let's pray together, please. Our gracious God, as we begin uh, to open up this 10th chapter, we have in mind a few people, God. We have in mind um, Charlotte Howard, and we're thanking you for her progress over this week and that she's getting better, and we thank you for that mercy. We do pray for Don and, and his salvation and his cancer and the family as well. Once again, God, we are confronted with the brevity of life and how quickly it can go from us and how a judgment with you is a very real thing. And so we pray that the mercy of Jesus would be on this family and they would turn to Christ in childlike faith if needed. We thank you for the good news about Jack. The little one be, is being cared for and progress is being made and we pray that equal progress for Gabe. Another little one, God, who is precious in your hand. We pray for his mother and dad, that they would know your help and trust in your plan. Jesus would would grow ever larger to them, and the care that he gives them would be received and enjoyed. And finally, God, Lynette. And we ask for your wisdom and your comfort for the doctors so that the diagnosis will be proper and the care will be swift and your mercy will be large. And the family can enjoy their grandmother again. Now, God, as we open your word this morning, we do humbly ask that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. We need this. Please save us. Please strengthen us. Please touch us. And make this book live in us as we go on from this place, all spared into the week and the life which lies ahead. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let me just say right off the bat that we should thank the Lord Jesus Christ that when he walked this earth, at the request of his disciples, he taught them to pray. And one of the prayers, or one of the lines in his prayer was, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that that line is going to be of great help to us this morning because here in chapter 10, what we're going to see is that now, right now in heaven, that heaven is not a sleepy inactive place. Heaven is not a vacation destination. For in heaven, for now, there's conflict. And Daniel chapter 10 shows us that the conflicts on earth, of which there are many, reflect the conflicts in the heavens of which are now happening. In other words, the conflicts that we know on the ground are tied to the conflicts in the heavens, and these conflicts will continue until the end of time when God will ultimately triumph. Now, my mind tells me that those things are true and that that day is coming. It doesn't waver in this. However, my feelings, sometimes they do. So when we consider all the evil all around us and as we consider the evil within us, the Bible gives us a picture that there is something far deeper, far sinister behind all of this, especially when the evil opposes fiercely The person of Christ, the work of Christ, the authority of Christ, and the honor of Christ's name in the world. And any sensible person, just with just a speck of of, uh, understanding, would ask themselves the question, why is this the case? Why is this always so? Why is there so much opposition to Jesus? Why so much opposition to his word, his rule, his work, his church, his worship? Why so much violent opposition at times and so much daily opposition To Jesus, why? Well, here's the answer. And I want you to follow the line of thought that the Bible gives. For example, Paul to the Ephesian church writes, 
Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, stands above all power and all authorities of the visible and invisible world for all time. Jesus rules everybody. He's first always. You can read that at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Consequently, as Abraham Kuyper said, and I think John Calvin said this as well, there is not one square inch of this entire universe, over this entire world, over everybody, which Jesus cannot cry, mine. And it's on account of this that the evil one, and if you would, his minions, aggressively oppose that reality and works to sway men and women from that reality. If you like, the spiritual forces of evil oppose Christ in the heavens, and the spiritual forces of evil oppose Christ and his people on this earth. Now, he does it in the third world country, if you would, by, by bombs and starvation and threats and all that kind of stuff. He does it in the West by comfort and ease and play. Now, whatever it is, the opposition is real. So in light of that opposition, what do we have? Well, we have conflict. And this conflict between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man is at the heart, listen carefully, that is at the heart of every conflict. Whether it be a supernatural conflict in the heavens or an international conflict between the nations or a domestic conflict between citizens, or a personal conflict between friends, or a family conflict between husband and wife, or parents and their children. All of it, at the very heart of it, is this opposition to the rule and to the reign of Christ. In other words, someone is unwilling. Someone's, if you would, is unwilling to obey Christ and bow to his authority and instruction. Subsequently, it's imperative that you and I understand this then, that every earthly conflict in turn reflects a greater conflict in the heavenly realms. And this is in part what we'll learn in chapter 10. Now, how can you say stuff like that, right? You can't just say it. Well, because this is what the Bible says. This is what Daniel chapter 10 shows. So, for example, way back in Genesis Genesis chapter 3, we have what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, which is, in other words, it's the first gospel. And this is what you read. God says to the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity, hostility, conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a prophecy pointing forward to Christ who would come, but it also tells us the effect of sin. And the effect of sin is, of course, conflict, hostility, enmity. And as a result of this conflict, all conflict in the world and in the heavens on any level, on any level, finds its origin here. Now, of course, everybody's not talking this way about this kind of thing. That the reason why there's conflict, whether it be national conflict or personal conflict, you can trace it all the way back to Genesis 3, and they're not telling you that there's spiritual conflicts in the heavens right now which are taking place, and they're tied to all the conflicts that we have on earth. I mean, most people don't speak that way, right? It's, it's either her or it's him or it's them or it's this theology or this ideology. That's why we fight. And the Bible says, no, listen, there is something that we cannot see. And so you think about the person in need of empirical evidence who needs to see and they will not believe unless they see. They have trouble dealing with this. The rationalist, the scientific person, which we thank God for, they have trouble believing in an open universe and of this cosmic battle which is taking place right now because they say all there is is now. And you may not speak of what we cannot see. We need evidence. 
But the Bible challenges this. So, for example, Paul says, Ephesians 6, this is J.B. Phillips' translation, the battle is is not a person-to-person battle. No, we are up against the unseen powers which controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Again, Ephesians 6, J.B. Phillips' translation. That, says Paul, is it. That's it. So every conflict, ultimately, again, it's not a person-to-person, nation-to-nation conflict. But it, it is in the forces of this dark word, world, excuse me, who feeds the mind with antichrist notions, against Christ notions. Just as it was in the garden, right? This is, this is the, the first antichrist notion. Did God really say, remember? Because, you know, he knows that if you eat of the tree, you'll never be the same again. And God is just trying to keep you from greatness that you deserve. That's the line that Satan gives. One of my favorite books of all time is William Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. In fact, this is, this is medicine for you. Whenever I feel afraid, after I get out of my fetal position of fear, <laughs> whenever I feel afraid, I whistle a happy tune, I read my Bible, and sometimes I grab Robinson Crusoe and just read a few pages. And I did that the other day, honestly. This is what I came with. So Robinson Crusoe, you remember, he's stuck on an island somewhere off the coast of South America. And through a series of circumstances, there's this man, Friday, that he was able to rescue from uh, some kind of native bad guys, whatever they are. So he's teaching in the Bible. He comes to the subject of the devil. He told Friday the devil was God's enemy who was trying to defeat God's purpose in the world. Friday asks, is God not as strong as devil? Crusoe assures him, God's stronger than the devil. Christians pray to God for victory over the devil. Friday asked another question. Then why God no kill devil, so make him do no more wicked? And Crusoe, like a parent who was just asked a question from their child about God that they can't answer, or forgive me, was asked a question about sex, he's just like, I don't know what to do with that question. So he pretends not to hear him. Friday keeps asking the question. So Crusoe says, God will punish the devil in the end. To which Friday replies, but why God not kill devil now? That's a question. And that's a question that many people ask. People have asked, they will ask, they are asking, and they need to ask. If your Bible's open, verse 12, Daniel kind of sort of asked that question. Maybe not exactly, but by way of principle, he is. It's a good question, especially if a Christian, as a Christian, will say, if we bought into the lie that says, you know, heaven can be now, and you can have that smooth life now, and conflict somehow means that we miss God, and we haven't found the spout where all his blessings come out. And that's like, you know, fantasy world. That's the life of Riley. So, on one level, it would be wrong to fault those who ask such a question because they probably have never known the doctrine of original sin, how human depravity affects everyone, and how the world as God made it is not the world as we have it, and Jesus come, has come to put an end to sin and death and bring us back to God. However, still, still the answer to why God no kill devil now lies ultimately with God alone. So either we're going to believe in the reality of spiritual conflict, which God's word declares, 
or we're not going to believe that within the corridors of power, in governments, foreign and domestic, within the places of our life, our family, our church, our marriage, there are dark and sinister unseen forces which would be at work, which oppose the word and the work and the authority and the advancement of Christ's name in the world. And the people involved in this may be unsuspectingly the agents of these dark forces. So what takes place in the invisible realm, if you would, spills over to the visible realm. Again, Abraham Kuyper says, speaking of this, if at once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world became, it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggles drones in its backlash. Loved ones, the most powerful powers in the world are unseen powers. And we live our lives either completely unaware or mostly unaware of these battles in the heavens. So as we begin to engage in these verses, let me suggest to you that maybe it's a mercy that God would forbid such visions of the heavenly warfare to most. And maybe, maybe this is the reason why God determined two very, very, very old men would receive the lion's share of apocalyptic visions in the Holy Scriptures. For we have Daniel in the Old Testament who is pushing 90. And we have John the Apostle in the New Testament who probably was a bit past 90, and they were entrusted, again, with a lion's share of future and future grace. Something to think about. It's something to think about because these kinds of conflicts are not one with the strength of men or women. But they are won by the power of God in our prayers. This is why you see Daniel in this book praying so much. 2 Corinthians 10, again, uh, this is J.B. Phillips' translation. The truth is that although, of course, we lead normal human lives, the battle we are fighting is on the spiritual level. The very weapons we, are, we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. Our battle is to bring down every deceptive fantasy and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. We even fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges, this is beautiful, we capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10. If you have a worship folder, you see in the back, you can wipe or work through this with me. First point, he weeps and wails. Verse 2, if your Bible's open, at that time I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. Now the vision in chapter 8, which made Daniel distraught, and the vision and the message of chapter 9, which left Daniel silent, 
is now a vision, chapter 10, that left him weeping and wailing. He weeps and wails. That's the sense of the word mourn in the Hebrew in verse 2. Okay, why is he weeping and wailing? Well, verse 1 tells us, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. Verse 4 tells us that Daniel is at the bank of the great river Tigris. So Daniel is not in Jerusalem. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, we know from chapter 1 of Ezra, verses 1 to 4, that God had stirred in the heart of Cyrus to issue this decree. uh, Year 1, in fact, Jeremiah 25 tells us this, actually prophesied this, that the exile would be lifted and the Jewish people could return home. And here we are again, face to face with the sovereignty of God. Chapter 1 of Daniel, it was God who brought um, his people into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 10, it was God who was taking his people out of the hands of King Cyrus. And so Cyrus puts it to press, God having moved his heart, telling the people, those of you who would like to go are free to go, and if you want to go, I'll help you go. Because he, helped, he said he would help with some of the funding. Ezra again, chapter 1 tells us this. So verse 1 here tells us that it's now two years past the king's decree. And Daniel is still there in Babylon. So the question has to come, why didn't Daniel go home? Right? Well, we know again from the book of Ezra that the reports coming back to Daniel on the roughly 42,000 Jewish people who did return to Jerusalem, they're not good. On top of that, the vision that he gets about the future, not good. So there's great pain for Daniel. And the great pain causes him weeping and wailing. Ezra chapter 4 again tells us that as quickly as the people returned home and as quickly as they began their building project, it comes to a standstill. Why? Well, you know, you're probably going to have to read Ezra for homework maybe over this Lord's Day. But, but as soon as many of the people realized what was happening and that all the attention was still on God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And what he wanted. As usual, opposition came. I mean, this is the story of the Bible. God does something, opposition comes, the progress stops, and you have to wait until Nehemiah to get things started again. So maybe the reason why he didn't go back to Jerusalem was that, you know, I'm just too old for all that mess. And there's guys like Ezra, Nehemiah, and their associates. They can take the lead in the rebuilding and the reestablishing and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to deal with it. Maybe. However, verse 2 does tell us, if you see this, that Daniel went on some kind of three-week fast. And then you see that little phrase, he used no lotions. That's not like, you know, fancy creams and lotions. Lotions at that time were medicinal purposes. Protect his skin from the elements, the sun and the wind and and the harshness of it. So... Any kind of three-week thing that anybody at any age would try to do like this, that can't be easy. I mean, don't eat the best foods for three weeks and don't eat this and that and you, and you basically take away all the creature comforts. That's not easy for anyone, let alone someone who's 86, 87, 88 years of age. So I don't think that's it. So he weeps and he wails. He's there. Second point, why does he stay and pray? That's my second point. He stays and he prays. Well, if you think about it, this is so Daniel, isn't it? This is the grace of God in Daniel. This has been his whole life. This is not new to Daniel. We know that he was faithful to the word of God. And in consequence of his faithfulness to the word of God, 
He is continuously seeking the face of God in prayer. And as a result of seeking the face of God in prayer, understanding the vision, and listen carefully, once again, understanding the times and of the great conflict which is upon them and what is to come, he stays and he prays, knowing that this would mean for those returning back to Jerusalem who will meet opposition to their rebuilding and to all other future conflicts, he's convinced that him staying and praying is absolutely essential. Now stay with me. He is willing to stay and pray for people he will never see and people he will never see again. So that means to me He's not going to enjoy any immediate gratification which will come as a result of him staying and praying. Now, do you understand that? He's going to stay and pray for people he'll never see again or he'll never see for the future Israel. And he will not know any of the results of his ministry and prayer as a man. Now, listen. Isn't that one of the great tests for us in these days? To give ourselves something to something pulling away from every fleshly ease and excitement with the real possibility of, of never knowing the fulfillment and the joy of our labor. But still we give, still we exert, though we may never see the final picture. Because, loved ones, if we are only interested in that which speaks to immediate success, immediate satisfaction, we got to see something, then we will more than likely never make any serious impact. So you see, the real test are those who can see past the now, give themselves in faithfulness to that which they will never experience on this earth. And that's what we have in Daniel. This is the activity of God's grace. He stays and he prays and Daniel empties himself. Now remember Paul speaking to the Christians in Philippians in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus. And what does he say? Christ emptied himself. In other words, in Jesus we have one who came to earth and he lived for God and he lived for man, which, mean, which means he could not live for himself. That is the spirit of Christ. That's what we have in Daniel. Last Saturday afternoon I was doing my normal readings. I like to read the online edition of The Spectator. I was reading it and they had a letter from December 23rd, 1916. Listen to this. This is a World War, War War story. The religion of the ordinary soldier. During a discharge of gas at the beginning of July along our front, one of the cylinders was displaced by the near bursting of an enemy shell. It turned the nozzle round and the gas, dangerous gas, began to pour out into our trench. One of my lads, who was acting as orderly, heard from the communication trench that something was happening and ran into the front line. He ran forward, unprotected, tugged at the cylinder, and pointed its nozzle outward again before he fell unconscious. 
He died a few minutes afterwards. Those who saw it told me it was quite a spontaneous action. This boy would have told you that if his name was on a shell, it was no use running away. But what is this but this? Look at how he turns this around. He saved others. Himself, he could not save. That's from the Gospels as people began to mock Jesus. So he turned it around. He saved others. Himself, he could not save. This Christian instinct. Mind you, this is 1916. This Christian instinct of self-emptying and self-sacrifice is a part of the courage of those thousands of ordinary soldiers. So this is what happened. This is the truth. I read it. And God is my witness. I said to myself, where is that man? Where is that man? Where is he? When we become captivated by the attractions and seductions of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth, eternal life begins to fade far from our view. And in consequence of that mindset, the privileges and responsibilities of grace, obedience to Christ, the worthiness of God far from us. And they do not hold the estimation that they deserve. We in turn become one generational, one family oriented. And everything becomes about now. Subsequently, one of the byproducts of this is that we bend towards framing a life on earth which becomes cozy and individualized and comfortable and now oriented, therefore self-serving. And we think, and a whole lot of people will tell us, you know, if we capture this life, they say, okay, you're the smart one. You found your sweet spot. You did it. And you created heaven on earth. Wow. Wonderful. But that is the result of a wandering mind, a feeble mind, a closed mind, and closed to the fact that we are our brother's keeper. And the Christian's concern is about the honor of Christ's name in the world. And we are servants. We are not tourists on this earth. But we leave the hard places so quickly. Conflict-free. Heaven on earth. But, (laughs) the Bible would say, what heaven are you talking about? Because right now, right now, what do we see? Conflicts, heavens, angelic wars, good versus evil, spiritual warfare in heaven, spilling over, if you like, onto earth. And Daniel seeing this, being given the privilege of that vision and this angelic war, seeing this, he thinks way past himself, way past even his own people in that generation, and he thinks future. And he stays and he prays, fully aware that he will not set his eyes and see the fulfillment of his prayers on this earth. That takes guts. That takes real guts. And for those of us, those of you who labor long and pray long, and you don't sometimes see the fulfillment of your labor and your prayer, the fact that Daniel stayed and kept on praying is a great encouragement to us so we may never receive the results of our prayers on this earth, but would to God we see them right up front after we see Jesus in heaven. That's our encouragement. He weeps and wails. He stays and he prays. Final point, fearful and feeble. This is a good balance to that. Now, when you think about Daniel, 
you probably wouldn't think of him as a person who's fearful and feeble. I mean, Daniel reads like a man of action. He's very durable, right? He's on his ninth decade. The reports and the visions, however, they're too much for him, and he's afraid. It's a wonder. I mean, did you read how many times that the voice of heaven had to tell Daniel, we love you, Daniel. You're highly esteemed. This is the third time. I mean, there's something going on with Daniel that he needs to be told again and again that he's loved. So here's our lesson. Daniel is incredibly faithful. Of that, there can be no doubt. But in his faithfulness, he is fearful and he is feeble. So the temptation to think that if he's faithful, then he's going to be fearless, you know, and he'd be like Superman, right? And there's no way, there's no way that you can be faithful and at the same time fearful and feeble. That's what we have in Daniel. And if you don't believe that, then you'd be bought into the Madison Avenue version of Christianity. You know, Superman, Superwoman, you know, you take your vitamins, you take your, do your exercise, be nice to kids, you know, what is it? You pay your tithe, and you read your Bible, and you say your prayers, and there you go. Look at those spiritual muscles. Incredible, right? Superman, Superwoman, fearless. But so, again, when you open your Bible... And you see guys like Moses and Jeremiah and Gideon, all who were fearful. God, I can't. God, please someone else. Moses, you know, Aaron is a much better speaker than I am, God. And then you see our Lord Jesus Christ, who was faithful unto death. But what do we read in the garden, the, the other garden? If it is at all possible, then let the cup pass from me. In other words, I'm a little afraid here. Faithful, but still, still fearful. So what we need to see is that Daniel denies this notion of kind of a, the robust man's man, if you would, strong personality, which is why we find him always on his knees speaking to God and not on his feet making demands. First word to Daniel from the angelic visitor is what? Verse 12, fear not. Why does he say that? Again, because Daniel is afraid. The vision is too much. My God, his people are going to be brutalized by this antichrist person or spirit or whatever. People are going to die. Lots and lots and lots of people are going to die. So he weeps and he wails and he stays and he prays. He's, he's faithful, but he's still fearful and he's feeble in that. Verse 10, verse 16, verse 17 and 18. Verse 10, he's trembling. His hands and knees are shaking. Uh, verse 16, his tongue is unable to form words and his mouth speechless. Verse 17, he finds himself helpless. He can't breathe, which has some of the characteristic of a panic attack. Verse 18, he has no strength. So the vision, as it were, doesn't put him on TV, doesn't put him depressed. I mean, I have to say this because it happens all the time. He's not posting his vision on social media. Listen what happened to me. It's me again. This is like the third time. Can you believe it? Oh, I can't believe it. No, it puts him face down on his knees. He needs to be touched by an angel three times. Verse 10, verse 16, verse 18. He's feeble. It's not in the notes, but I'm pretty convinced that in my own life, my best work is always when I'm feeble. When I'm kind of like fearful, fearless, that's just like stupid on my end, and I don't like myself when I'm that way. I'd rather, be, I'd rather be feeble, to be real honest with you. Much safer for me. Now, we've got to save the rest for next time, because we're going to take communion here in just a moment. 
We started out at the beginning of this talk with the notion that we should thank God for the Lord's Prayer and the line that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's our homework. This is the mystery of God's will in heaven because in heaven right now, what is there? There is conflict. There is war in the heavenly realm, which means in spiritual terms, there is war on earth. Not a, not a person-to-person war, I mean, but a spiritual war. This is what we're talking about. When where are wars, spiritual wars, best fought? Where are they best fought? Where is Daniel? Home base, on his knees. He's weeping and wailing, he's staying and praying, he's fearful and feeble, but he's on his knees. And in his 86th, 88th year of life, we don't find him kicking back in Babylon. But we find him praying for understanding. He's still engaged in the world. He's asking hard questions about this thing. And he's serving his king, both his king on earth, Cyrus, and his king in heaven, the Lord. His work is to consider the word of God, to seek the face of God on his knees. Other people will do other stuff, but Daniel will pray and pray and pray and pray. Now, if you find yourself here this morning, and you're outside of that battle, then please pay careful attention. This vision, this reality of spiritual conflict and the vision of the future causes Daniel to turn to God in wholehearted devotion, dependence, in curiosity, and confession, knowing that he can't do anything, anything, and God alone must work. That's 2 Corinthians 4, right? He's an old clay pot. That's what he is. And that's what we are. And that's okay. That's okay. That's the way it should be. So whether we're old or middle-aged or young, we're old clay pots. We'll always be old clay pots in this flesh. Why? Well, what does 2 Corinthians 4 go on to say? To show that this all-surpassing power has to deal with the conflicts here and the conflicts here. This all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Fearful, feeble. Final quote. We'll save that for next time. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the table that we're going to partake of here in just a moment because the table is the picture of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So many good things happen, Father, when we receive communion. We thank you for everyone. But in it, God, we find our righteousness. We find our perfection. We find our sanctification and our wisdom in a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Prepare our hearts for that reality as we sing in preparation. For Jesus' sake, amen.